0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're concluding our series with Andy Steiger, entitled Thinking, Answering Life's Five Biggest Questions, with our final question being, is there life after death? So let's join Andy Steiger now. Hi, it's
1: Dr. John Newfeld here, and I'm in studio with Andy Steiger, who is the director of Apologetics Canada, and we've had a wonderful week of discussing various issues in defense of our faith. Today, we talk about the important subject of eternity and what God has planned for us. Welcome to the studio again, Andy.
2: The question of life after death is a question that everybody is asking. In fact, I heard recently of a movement across the United States and is now in Canada as well called Death Cafes in which people come and just talk about death. However, they're not allowed to talk about anything else, not allowed to talk about religion or uh, any sort of philosophies. You just talk about death. And I think that we would all agree that we're looking for a little bit more than just talking about death. We know that death is a reality that is coming, but we're looking to know, is there something beyond all of this? Is there, is there life beyond death? I got really thinking about this question a few years ago when my wife and I went to Israel. We were in Galilee looking forward to going to the different sites when we realized that we had arrived on a holiday and all of the transportation had come to a stop. The only thing that we could get a hold of was a bicycle, so I thought about renting that and riding around these, these vast distances in the desert heat and quite quickly realized that wasn't going to happen. So my wife and I gave up. We went down to the Sea of Galilee, uh, what they call Lake Kinneret, and we began to walk along the shore, and we saw a boat that was a replica of the time of Christ. We came up to the captain and asked if we could charter the boat for the day. And he explained to us that it had been rented months in advance, but he was willing to go and ask the people who had rented it if we could come aboard. Now, I didn't want to be an imposition, but I thought, wow, I got nothing else going today, so let's give that a shot. He came back with a man from South Africa who said that we could come aboard, but that things might get a little weird. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then he said, things might get a little crazy Now, at this point, I was just curious of what was weird and crazy, so my wife and I said, sure, let's do that. So we got on this boat and set sail for the middle of the lake, and we were kind of sitting far away from everybody, waiting for the weird and crazy to happen, when this family pulled out a guitar and they began to sing worship songs to God there in the middle of the lake. We quite quickly realized that this was a crazy, weird Christian family and asked if we could join into their amazing worship time. As we did that, they asked us what we had going on that day, and we told them that, The transportation had put us at a stop, and they said, well, we have a 15-passenger van waiting for us on the other side of the lake. Would you like to join us as we go tour the Bible sites today? And we said, absolutely. It was becoming like a 21st century Bible story in the making. We went to the other side, got in the car with them, and they drove us around to the different sites, explaining to us that they were leaving the best for last. The last site was the one that they were looking forward to the most. And as we got out of The van, they went to the back, Uh, this young man, he was 22 years old, named Wesley, went to the back with another of the brother-in-laws, and they pulled out a wheelchair. He put it on the ground, and I was expecting grandma to sit in it, but in fact, Wesley sat down in the chair. I noticed around me that the family was starting to cry, and my wife and I were really confused. We hadn't noticed anything unusual that day. They began to wheel Wesley down to the, the lake, and one of the brother-in-laws came beside us and said, you're probably wondering what's going on. My wife and I said, yeah, we are. And they said, well, Wesley was diagnosed with cancer, and he has about three months left to live, and this was our last vacation with Wesley. And we were looking forward to this day, and this was the day, and this was the spot that they had decided as a family that they would say goodbye to Wesley. My wife and I began to realize how incredible that was that they had invited us in this incredible day. But I was also curious why this site was so important to the family. As we got down to the lake, I even saw a plaque on the ground that said, This is holy ground. And as the dad opened his Bible up to John chapter 21 and began to read the scriptures over his family, I quite quickly realized that this was the spot in which the apostle Peter had met the risen Christ there on the shores as he reinstated him, asking three times, do you love me, Peter? And each time Peter saying, you know that I love you. And Jesus giving him the command to go and feed his sheep. This is the spot in which we see the Peter that went from abandoning Christ, and and here this Peter had watched as Jesus had been crucified and killed and, and abandoned Jesus, but now here on this shore, he is recommitting his life to Christ, to the willingness to go and to serve even to his death. There was a hope that Peter had that he did not have before. And what really caught my attention that day on the shore is that we saw that same hope in Wesley. This is a hope that we all share together in that death isn't the end of life. But why do we have that hope? We have that hope because Jesus not only claimed to be the author of life, he not only claimed to be God in the flesh, but he demonstrated it in the cross That Jesus defeated death. And I think it's significant to understand that those disciples, they didn't just see that Jesus had returned to life. You know, it's significant to note that the disciples had witnessed Jesus bring Lazarus back from the dead. They knew that he had power, but they didn't realize that he had defeated death until when he had returned from the the cross— The disciples saw before them walking, talking eternal life. They saw a man who would never die again, and this ultimately changed everything for them. They began to live and serve and sacrifice even to the point of death for Jesus, which raises the question for us. How do we know that Jesus actually lived? How do we know that he actually defeated death on the cross? I mean, as Christians, the cross is the actual crux of Christianity. Everything hinges on Jesus being who he claimed to be and having defeated death so that he can bring us back into a right relationship with God. In our culture today, we live in a time in which many people will argue that Jesus didn't even exist, that he's just a myth. In fact, there's uh, many different documentaries that will try to push this point. But the reality is, that Jesus, in fact, did exist. It's interesting that Bart Ehrman, a man who's not even a Christian, he's an agnostic, yet he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And he said this, he said, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher and teacher who was crucified, a Roman form of execution, in Jerusalem during the reign of of Roman Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Even though this is the view of nearly every trained scholar on the planet, it is not the view of a group of writers who are usually labeled and often label themselves mythicists. So then people often wonder, okay, well, what is the evidence? So Why can we be so sure that Jesus did exist and that we understand him correctly? And what we find is that Yes, there are a few documents outside of the Bible that talk about Jesus and the Christians, such as Josephus or the Roman historian Tacitus and Suetonius or uh, Pliny the Younger. So we have these writings that do talk about Jesus and the Christians. However, they pale in comparison to the New Testament. One of the things that I find often as I talk with different people is that there's this hesitancy to accept the New Testament as a reliable source of history. But the truth is is that the New Testament is an incredibly reliable source of history, and in comparison, there are no other uh, ancient manuscripts in, in antiquity that compare to the Bible. For example, the best preserved works that we have from antiquity would be uh, Homer's Iliad, of which we have 1,700 manuscripts and the earliest one dating to about 400 years after it was written. So, that's the best that we have outside of the Bible. The New Testament, on the other hand, we have over 5,700 ancient manuscripts in fragments, the earliest of which date to between 40 to 100 years after they were written. If you were to include all the other manuscripts that we have from Latin, Armenian, Coptic, Slavic, Ethiopian, the number is into the 15,000s. The New Testament is by far the most attested ancient document that we have. That means then, that if you are seeking to discredit the New Testament, historically you will need to discredit all the other ancient documents as well, because in the New Testament, we've got the most manuscripts dating incredibly early in comparison to what we find in antiquity.
0: And we'll be concluding our series with a conversation between Andy Steiger and Dr. John Neufeld in just a moment. You know, in 2017, Back to the Bible Canada has taken Psalm 66 verse 5 as an inspiration for ministry. It says, come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. The psalmist makes an invitation to know and to worship God, to understand his word of truth. And we accept that invitation by committing ourselves to discover the God of the Bible in his word. In a world of confusion and despair, we invite you to join us in inviting others, in fact, a nation, to come and see, to experience our great God of love. With your gifts and prayers together for His glory, the truth of the Bible will be heard and people will respond. Please partner with Back to the Bible Canada in support of our year-end ministry campaign. Call us even now at 1 800 663 2425. That's 1 800 663 2425. Or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Now let's join Dr. John Neufeld and Andy Steiger now.
1: Hi, Dr. John Neufeld here, and again, Andy Steiger, thank you so much for your presentation. So I want to begin by just telling you a little story, and, uh, and let's let's kind of feed off of that. I was in the airport in Tel Aviv some time ago, and I was talking to a man behind a kiosk, and the news had just come out in Israel of an amazing archaeological find that had happened in the city of David. And uh, we started this conversation. This man who had no religious training whatsoever said to me, you know, it's amazing to me to realize that the Bible really can be trusted. And I remember thinking about that conversation, that I can have that one in Jerusalem and many places in the world, but I almost never have that conversation in North America. It's as if the news of the trustworthiness of the ancient manuscripts has missed us somehow.
2: There is, it seems, this default position that the New Testament isn't reliable and you can't trust it historically. And so it's amusing because as archaeology continues to show that the Bible is trustworthy and continues to be a historically accurate document, it's almost as though people are surprised, or they in fact are. Well, it never made the news, right? So it never got told to people today. So we need
1: to talk about it. So let's do that. I think the first place where we want to begin is the actual documents of the New Testament. And uh, there has been, and the more liberal view has been that they're all late and that they came about as a result of multiple editing. But I, I want you to tell me, why should I believe that they were early and authentic to the original writers?
2: So this is an important question for us, especially as we're looking at Jesus defeating death, this historical event, what good evidence do I have to believe that that actually happened? Now, particularly as we're getting at is, can I trust these New Testaments? Were they written early? Because what we're wanting to avoid is for legend to have crept in and for these just to be these made-up stories that we've placed our trust into. Well, one of the ways that scholars can begin to date the bible and and we need to date it because unlike letters that we write today we you know we write the date on the stuff that we write uh you know month, day, even year uh, They didn't do that in historical times. what they instead would do is they would give you key events that took place as one of the ways to let you know when something happened, or we can look at what isn't said in the document to see that if something isn't talked about, well, then there's probably a good likelihood that it hasn't, in fact, happened yet. This is one of the ways that we're able to date the Bible with regards to the destruction of the temple. We know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70, And Jesus even prophesies that it's going to take place, but yet we don't see in the the New Testament where uh, the Bible says, look, Jesus, his his prophecy was correct and the, the temple was destroyed. In fact, there's absolute silence on this. Let me give you another example of how this works. In Acts chapter 12, we read that James, the son of John, one of the disciples, was killed. So, and, and then we find out that that happened because of a time marker there around AD 44. But yet we don't hear about the death of any of the other disciples or the more well-known disciples such as Peter. Surely... Uh, if Peter or James, for example, would have died, uh, those would have been mentioned. I mean, here, James, the son of John, is mentioned, yet none of them are mentioned. The only reasonable conclusion, well, is that the disciples hadn't died yet, the other ones. Yet, Josephus, a first century historian, finds it significant to, to note that in eighty sixty-two, 62, James, the brother of Jesus, died. So we can see there that here a first century historian Josephus you know gives us the marker for James's death at AD 62 yet Acts the New Testament in fact doesn't mention James's death thus the the you know the conclusion being well he must not have died yet therefore Luke Acts which make up one document those must have been written before AD 62 Now if I could interrupt you for just a
1: moment because I don't want any of this to kind of just go over someone's head So let's go back to the first uh, event that you mentioned, that is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Mm -hmm. Now, you point out that in the gospel accounts, it would have been just a juicy thing, right? I mean, Jesus says, you know, not one stone will be left on another. It would have been just such a juicy thing to say, this was fulfilled, but they never say it, do they?
2: Yeah, absolute silence. I mean, that would be like somebody writing a book about the World Trade Towers, but never telling you about 9-11. Right. The only reasonable conclusion would be, well, 9-11 clearly hasn't happened yet. That's it. So then that tells us that the Bible must have been written before the destruction of the temple.
1: Well, I think that's so important to hear because on the more liberal side of things, we hear of scholars who have constantly been saying that the stories of Jesus went through multiple editings until at a later date, someone gave us these stories of miracles that were not a part of the original accounts. But clearly, when you read the documents themselves, that... That's really an impossible conclusion to come to.
2: Absolutely. That is not enough time for legend to have crept in, which is what they want to ultimately argue. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, we have fragments. Like recently, a fragment of Mark was found that dates to the first century. So, I mean, even even the manuscript evidence dates very early. But this is one of the ways of, you know, dating it internally tells us that it was written early as well.
1: So you've also mentioned this, this, this volume of manuscripts. I mean, it's just so many of them. And maybe the listener doesn't understand the significance of these early manuscripts. And, 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 and help us to understand how significant
2: is this that we have so many manuscripts. Well, I mean, when you look at other documents of history, you will have maybe a couple hundred, and that's still a lot. And they'll date even a thousand years after the event, but nobody's doubting whether or not Plato existed, or you know, you think about the different Caesars that have existed. Nobody's doubting these things, and they've got way less evidence for those than they do for Jesus. And I mean, I'm just I just picked two just out of the air. I mean, you could. You could do this with all the ancient documents. They just they don't even compare to the Bible. Okay, so that's very important for us to have as well.
1: So the, the manuscripts are authentic. What we have comes from the hands of the apostles. So here's the next question. H- how do I know that I can trust the testimony of the apostles? Why should I think you know, that they're not just scoundrels that are trying to pass something off?
2: That's a great question that scholars have thought about for a a long time and, in fact, is one of the greatest challenges for secular scholars when they come to, to to Christianity. You have to ask yourself, where did Christianity come from? And it's a difficult question for them to answer because it's such an unlikely thing. It's so unlikely that many scholars have actually concluded, and I'm talking secular scholars, have concluded that Jesus must have risen from the dead. Now, they don't think he actually rose from the dead. They they just think that the disciples must have thought that because you can't explain it any other way. And this is what I mean. Think about what takes place here. Let me just give you a couple examples. One is you've got James, the brother of Jesus, who thought that his brother was crazy and did not follow him. And then after the resurrection, you have Jesus' brother following him to his death. Josephus tells us that he was stoned to death for his brother. I mean, imagine what would it take you to convince you that your brother was God in the flesh and you would be willing to follow him to your death for that belief. Now you have the disciples. They all abandon him once Jesus is taken to the cross. But then three days later, they all again follow him to their death. Now, now that's impressive in and of itself, but it's much more than that. They weren't gaining anything from this story. They weren't gaining wealth from this story. They weren't gaining popularity from this story. They were getting suffering and persecution for this story. Now, what's more than that is that... Beyond getting persecution, suffering for this story, we see in the disciples a complete 180 in their worldview. They went from hating the Romans to loving and caring for the Romans. Now, I wish I had time to unpack that, but when you see the wars that took place and the animosity and the hatred between the Jews and the Romans, you understand that it could only take a miracle the size of the resurrection to turn their hearts around.
1: Yeah, so we have uh, every reason to believe that the, that the uh, testimony of the apostles is true. We have every reason to believe that the writings that we have inherited is indeed theirs. So really, it all comes down to one central issue, doesn't it? And that is the resurrection of Jesus. These men who wrote the New Testament were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and for them, that made all the difference. And that brings us full circle, and it brings us back to the question of eternity. How do you and I know that after we die— that there will indeed be a resurrection, that we will indeed live forever? Is there a confidence that we can have?
2: When you read the Gospels, what you see is this complete change in the disciples. And in particular, I love reading the book of Acts because what you see in particular with Peter's first sermon, what does he do? He preaches Christ crucified. And every sermon, this is, this is the crux, is that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. And for, the, for Peter, for the disciples, this was their hope firmly fixed that because Jesus lives, that I can live too. Because he defeated death, I have hope that in him is not just life, not this that you come back to life, but that there is eternal life with him. And so this is where you have Peter saying in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, as we've been talking about with apologetics, that we are to be able and willing to give an answer for the, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And for Peter, for the disciples, that hope was firmly fixed on the resurrection.
1: Thank you, Andy Steiger, and I want to say to our listeners that it is very important for us to continue to have a firm foundation for our faith. That you know that, that there needs to be a certainty around the things that we have believed in, so that. You know, as each one of us are moving closer to the date of our own death, that we can know with certainty that the things that we have believed are indeed true and that we have fixed our hope on Christ, who is the only fixed reference point in the world. So, Andy, thank you again for coming and spending a week for us here at Back to the Bible Canada.
0: Thanks so much, Andy, and thanks, Dr. Newfeld. This has been a great message, a great conversation, and a wonderful series. And remember to join us next week as we begin to prepare for the Christmas season. Dr. Newfeld has prepared a brand-new two-week series entitled Christmas from the Beginning of Time, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Did you know your financial support to Back to the Bible Canada makes all of our programs and resources possible? We have no other regular means of revenue but our friends and partners across Canada who believe, as we do, in the importance of engaging people with the truth of God's Word. In fact, your gifts make this program on this station possible and 1,300 additional programs every week across Canada. You provide our young adult ministry in-doubt, available to thousands of young people every week, and the unique message of hope and joy heard every day through the ministry of Laugh Again. So thank you. And please consider helping us reach our year-end ministry goal of $355,000 by December 31st. Your gift is essential in continuing our mission into reaching out in new ways with God's Word. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.